good, and it has nothing to do with me, but this book right here is good, isn't it? It's God's Word. Who believes this is God's Word? His inspired, infallible Word. Who believes that it's been preserved for us so that we can trust it, even though it's been copied, even though it's been translated? I believe that God's work has been in all of that. And although we can learn the original Greek and the Hebrew, which is a great thing to do, man, God has just been so good to preserve his word so that we have it today. So I just want to, one more time before we get started, if you are joining us for the first time today, I said it earlier, but if you haven't filled out one of those connect cards yet, please, please do that. Don't worry. We won't spam you. We don't want to harass you, but we would love a chance to be able to reach out at least that one time. Um, and we, we hope that Fountain of Life could become your church home. But if not, we will pray that you find the perfect church home for you. And also, uh, take out your Go Deep guides if you have those and hold those up. Let me see. Who's got their Go Deep guides? All right. Now go ahead and put them down. If you did not receive one of those on your way in, can you just lift up your hand real quick so our ushers can help you out? Good, there's a few of you. We wanna make sure that you're able to follow along. Um, there's not as much following along as you might think in this because a lot of it is designed for you to take home and to use as a part of your daily time with Jesus. Now imagine that for, with me for just a moment. What if everybody took these Go Deep guides seriously and they decided to use the margins on the front cover to take some notes, to jot down what you feel the Holy Spirit teaching you. And what if for the next five or six days, you answered one question as a part of your daily devotions, because you said, God, I, I know you spoke through Pastor Joe in your word, and so help me to take this deeper. Help me to apply it to my life. And you spent a week marinating, and, and the message that hopefully you trust God placed upon your pastor's heart to share with you. And what if you're, you're marinating through it all week long and then you're taking it to your life group and you're discussing it further and you're hearing uh, the truth through the perspective of those around your circle. How many of you think that God could do something in that? Amen? So just know that these Go Deep guides are not just something that we think are cool to give you, but we do it with great purpose, believing that God wants to take you deeper, hence the name. Go deep, guy. That's right. You got it. So please feel free to take notes and, and follow along with us and uh, see if I can get this thing to stop freaking out on me. There we go. Sort of. All right. So, um, you know, you've probably heard me talk at nauseum about the little, little tiny desert town I grew up in, right? Say, so, yes, pastor, we've heard the story about Geisela, Arizona. How many of you have heard stories about Geisela, Arizona? Don't think I've told this one, though, okay? If I have, tell me later. All right, so in this small town, one thing that's nice about growing up in a small town is uh, you can walk across the street, and you can shoot your guns, right? And you don't get arrested for it, right? You can drive across the street with your dirt bike, and ride through trails, and you're not far from your house. And that's what I grew up with. We always had some sort of off-road vehicle, whether it be a, a motorcycle, a three-wheeler, a quad. And so I would get to the point where I would ride this thing, this motorcycle, this little dirt bike, on a regular basis. And how do you know, the more comfortable you get with a vehicle or a machine, the more wild you could possibly get, right? Is that just a guy thing? 
<laughs> and so uh, there are just countless trails. There are man-made uh, jumps out of the earth that some of the local uh, adults and kids helped and build and just all these fun places. Just go out and kill yourself, basically. And so I got to the point where I was flying around these tight curves faster than I'd ever before. And lo and behold, I lost control of my dirt bike. I was thrown from the bike. The bike was flipping over end over end, and then it landed in a ditch upside down. I sit up, and the first thing you do when you have an accident like that is you check yourself, right? You're like, okay, am I bleeding? Is anything broken? Does this still work, right? I'm doing all this stuff, and, and so finally, I sat there for a while because although I wasn't seriously injured, I was in some pain, and so you kind of got to sit there and, and, and rub it, right? Rub some dirt on it, right, as they say. And I get up after a, a long moment, and I walk over to the motorcycle, and I flip it over, and I go to start it. And if any of you know anything about motorcycles, what do you think happened? It wouldn't start. Why wouldn't it start, Steve? The gas is in the wrong place, right? And so because it had been flipped upside down, all the fuel flooded into the engine. And so when I went to, that's all I got over and over again. And I did that until I was sweating. Um, and so then, of course, the sweat goes across the skinned parts of your knee and then it stings. And I'm just like, oh, I can't get this stupid thing to start. And so what happened is because the wrong part of that vehicle was exalted, it stopped functioning the way that it was designed. And so this powerful machine that just a few moments earlier was carrying me along with great speed and power now was reduced to a useless hunk of metal that I had to push all the way home. Why do I share that story with you? Because we work the same way. When anything becomes exalted above God in our life, it no longer functions the way it was designed. And then when those things become exalted in our hearts, we no longer function with the power, with the authority that we were designed to function with. So today I want to talk to you about the upside down heart. See, some of us have exalted things above God, and as a result, we find ourselves lifeless and without power. We find ourselves feeling defeated, maybe over the same thing, or maybe it feels like everything's raining down against us. And it doesn't mean that uh, solid Christians with their hearts surrendered to God will not face spiritual warfare, because you absolutely will. But you find yourself feeling like a victim and completely defeated. And sometimes, often is the case, it's because the wrong things are exalted in your heart and in your mind. And so before we dig into the word at our tables, I want you to discuss this topic. What consequences have you experienced when you've allowed other people or things to be exalted above God? in your life. Let's take six minutes to discuss at our tables, and then we're going to dig deep into God's Word. All right. We had some very, some great openness and transparency at our table, and that is always just so appreciated, guys. Can I just commend all of you that we're very honest in this moment? Um, that heals others. Your vulnerability, your honesty 
helps heal others. And, and one of the big ways is it helps them bring what was secret and what was darkness into the light. So thank you so much for trusting those at your table with your struggles. And that's an, a great moment to remind you too that what's set at your stable, let's keep it at our table. Did I say stable? What's set at your table, let's keep it at our table. This isn't to be shared anywhere else. Let's keep that trust going. Amen. Can we do that? Can we make our tables a safe place? All right, let's do that. Awesome. All right, so a long, long time ago, there was a mutiny in heaven. I should have started that like um, Star Wars. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was this creature named Satan, and he rebelled against God's authority. And here's what happens. It's found in Revelation chapter 12, Starting in verse 7, I'll read 7 through 9 and then verse 12. It says, then there was a war in heaven. Imagine that, a war in heaven. For me, that's hard to even grasp. And it says, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. So we're talking about an actual war taking place. And it says, the dragon lost the battle. Can somebody say amen? Amen. And he and his angels were forced out of heaven... This great dragon, and in case you're wondering if I'm interpreting this right or if it's just an allegory, it's made very clear here. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. And so this whole, this whole concept of uh, the devil rebelling against God, there's other passages like in Isaiah where there's some debate over its meaning, but this is the most clear picture given to us in Revelation that the dragon, at least in this context, refers to Satan himself and that he rebelled against God's authority. And as a result, he was cast down. Where was he cast down? Whoa. Okay, so there's got to be some implications to that, right? So here's the implications. It says in verse 12, therefore rejoice. Who? Who should rejoice? Oh, the heavens. And you who live in the heavens rejoice. But terror will come where? Upon the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you in great anger. Why? Why is he so angry? Because he knows he has little Time. There's all this good news and bad news mixed together in those verses right there. But of course, the good news outweighs the bad. And so terror upon the earth. But the good news is the, the devil knows he has very little time. What that means is he's already been defeated. And so Satan, who was a created being, who was created to worship, decided he wanted to be worshipped. And how many of you know that sometimes humanity falls into that same trap? I want to be worshipped. We, we all know people in our life that we would refer to as narcissists. But sometimes we don't realize that we might ourselves even have some symptoms of narcissism going on because it's a part of our nature. And so Satan knew that God can, he found out the hard way that his authority could not be usurped. He could not overthrow him, that God could not be manipulated. And so what does he do? He says, well... I'll try to manipulate his creation. I'll try to manipulate these humans that he's created. And so through sin, through the story of Adam and Eve and the eating of the forbidden fruit, what happened? Well, well, Satan came and he appealed 
to the same nature he gave into. He said, God doesn't really care about you and want what's best for you. God is afraid you'll become like him. God doesn't want you to be exalted, but I do. I don't want you to miss out on this. And so if you take of this fruit and you eat of it, you will become like God, knowing both good and evil. And so what happens, of course, is she takes of the fruit, then she gives it to her husband, and they both commit this act of rebellion against God, exalting themselves, wanting, instead of being uh, the, the creation that was created to worship God, they says, I, we too want to be exalted, we want to be worshiped. And from that moment, they, everything had been flipped upside down. They were upside down. Their heart had flipped upside down, and as a result, death entered into their lives. You know, there's actually physical uh, risk from hanging upside down. Did you know that? So have you ever been on one of those inverter tables, right? It's supposed to be good for your back. But if you hang upside down for too long, all sorts of crazy complications can happen from it. Like, number one, your heavier organs will push down against your lungs, making it difficult to breathe. If you hang upside down long enough, you could die from asphyxiation, from suffocation. Um, it, it has a blood rush comes to your head, which it can cause to ruptures and um, brain bleeds and things like that, which can be life-threatening. It can also cause your heart to be overloaded because it was designed to function while you're standing upright. It was uh, specifically designed so that it would be able to produce the blood flow that's needed for the body while it is upward. But when we are flipped on its head, extra strain is, uh, comes upon the heart, making it vulnerable and susceptible to cardiac issues, even cardiac arrests. Think about that. You are designed in a way that God is to be exalted above you. And when anything, including yourself, is exalted above God, you're putting yourself at risk. As a result, we live in a very upside-down world. So this forced God to make a difficult choice. Do I destroy my creation? And we know there was the flood, but he kept a remnant, right? Or do I take punishment upon myself to fulfill the law and restore creation? And so it says in John 3, 16, anybody ever heard that scripture before? This is New Living Translation, so it might sound a little different than how you memorized it. But for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And Paul tells us the result of what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. It says, though he was God... We believe in the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he and the Father are one. He did not, even though that's the case, he did not think of equality with God as something that he needed to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Does that mean he ceased being God? No. But it does mean that he turned his back on his privileges and he lived as a man, fully human and fully God among us. It says he took the humble position of a slave. This is unimaginable for someone who was to be exalted as the name above all names. Notice that the way he accomplishes it is to lower himself to the lowest place. Um, as a slave and was born as a human being, when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. 
and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him. God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names. I'd like to introduce to you the Name Above All Names series <laughs> beginning today. See, though his name is already exalted, our world continues to be very upside down. There's this Netflix series, I'm not endorsing it. It's called Stranger Things. And there's, there's some very demonic things actually represented in this sh show. But there's something that they nailed. That there is another realm where the enemy is in control. And do you know what they call it? The upside down. Because everything is similar yet different. Things work differently here than they do over here. And this is exactly what happens when we become upside down, we invite the upside down into our world. Sometimes even Christians can participate in the inverted world that we live in. We can, we can contribute to the chaos that the enemy has because something's upside down in our own heart. I want to give you ways today that you can flip your upside down heart back over again. All right, let's take a pause here because we're going to get into God's word. Would you stand with me just for a moment and grab your Bible? If you're using the app, you can grab your phone. You might want to turn it on airplane mode, though, so you don't get all these notifications while God's trying to speak to you. Okay? And we're going to make a statement today about this word that we hold in our hands. Okay? So let's put it on the screen. Read this with me on the count of three. One, two, three. This is my Bible. It is God's word. If I read it and live it, I will become everything it says that I am. Amen? You can be seated. Another way I could say this is this is my Bible. It is God's word. When I read it and live it, everything that is upside down can be turned over again. If you believe that, say amen. So turn with me, if you will, because even though it's going to be on the screens, it's great practice to try to follow along in your scriptures, okay? And so turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, because what I want to share with you today is something that Jesus Christ instituted um, during a pivotal moment in history, during a very intimate and, what's the word, tumultuous time, I guess, with his disciples knowing he was facing death, and they're gathered together, and they're sharing in the Passover meal. And in this, he instituted something that we today refer to as communion. And one of the purposes of this is that we ensure that our heart does not get flipped upside down. We ensure that God stays exalted in our life. And so I wanna take you there to this moment and where we pick up in the story is right after um, Judas had already asked Jesus, am I the one that's gonna betray you? And so just, uh, just for a moment with me, focus on the emotions that are fully God but fully human savior was wrestling with. And he's about to, Connect all the dots. Check this out. Verse 26, chapter 26, verse 26. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this cup and eat it for this is my body. 
And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Father, would you just illuminate your word to us today? Let it penetrate our hearts and do what you designed it to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So what would the disciples have understood about this meal that they were sharing together? This was a meal that they had shared with their family their entire lives marking the Passover, which was a retelling of the story of Exodus and how um, God led his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. And uh, it was a retelling of that Exodus story. And they, they even ate, roasted and ate a lamb because it was the blood of the lamb that was used to be uh, painted on the doorpost of each of the Israelites' homes so that when the angel of death came, which was the final plague that God sent against the Egyptians to claim the firstborn of every household, it would see the blood of the lamb and pass over that house and move on to the next one. And so they were already aware of this, but understand that the disciples are thinking of this experience strictly from an Old Testament uh, context without fully realizing its eternal implications and how it directly tied into Jesus Christ. And so not only are they sharing this meal together, but they are sharing a revelation. Have you ever had a revelation of God that completely changed your thinking, completely changed your life? This is what was taking place with Jesus and the disciples here. Because this meal not only told a story, but it also foreshadowed how Jesus would become the final Passover lamb. And there are scriptures we won't get in today that refer to him as just that, the Passover lamb on this night, Jesus ate with his disciples and began to connect all the dots. Like, this is what you've been told this means, and it's true, but there's more. And he broke the bread. And they drank the wine together. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 15, he adds that Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. So this shows us that Jesus in the midst of everything that's on his shoulders, knowing that he's gonna be betrayed, arrested, unjustly tried and accused and murdered, a slow, agonizing death as a penalty for sins he never committed. In the midst of all this, there was this eagerness to explain to his friends so that they would understand the fullness of what the sacrifice meant for them. That's the heart of Christ. The blood of the lamb spared the life of the firstborn son. Now the blood of God's one and only son has spared the life of everyone who trusts in him. As a result, God would exalt his name as the name above all names. But he knew that the human heart is easily flipped upside down. And so he gave them this practice of what we now call communion to ensure that their heart remains right side up. 
This morning, we will learn uh, how the practice of communion can help us put an end to the things that flip our heart upside down. But there remains, I believe, a lack of reverence in our relationship with God that is often reflected over the communion experience to where it's been reduced to a simple ritual that we repeat mindlessly to where we can find ourselves having, having conversations that I have to admit that I've had before. Like, oh my gosh, this tastes like styrofoam. What's wrong with this juice? I think it's old because we've lost a, a reverence for what this is truly supposed to represent. So let's get into that. There's four things I wanna share with you about how you can flip your heart right side up again and make sure that Christ remains exalted in your life. Number one is this, you gotta get rid of your idols. You gotta get rid of your idols. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're gonna spend the rest of our time pretty much in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 14, Paul is addressing some issues that he sees in the church, which always makes me think, what would he write in a letter to us? What would he see and be like, you're getting a letter. So he says here in verse 14, so my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. Duh. Somebody say duh. We're not supposed to worship idols, but he says, you are reasonable people. <laughs> That's awesome. You're worshiping idols, but you're reasonable people. Decide for yourself if what I'm saying is true. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread. We'll get to that later. Showing that we are one body. Think about the people of Israel. Weren't they united by eating the sacrifices at the altar? So when Jesus shared from the one loaf... And the one cup, he was demonstrating so much more uh, than what he was about to do, but also that they were becoming one with him. In fact, uh, there was a custom in Jesus' time where to propose marriage would involve the offering of a cup of wine uh, to uh, the woman. And if she received and accepted the, accepted the invitation, she would take the cup and she would drink it, and they're engaged, Right? And so there's this symbolism found here too. And again, Jeff actually spoke on this uh, when he spoke here. How long ago was that? I don't know. It was a while ago. It's, it's your turn again, I think, right? And he, he, talked about, he talked about how what we're being invited to is a wedding feast. And, and he speaks and he uses that metaphor in, a, um, in a, a parable. And so it's a wedding feast. God was proposing marriage to us. Why? So that we could become one with him. Listen to that language when it talks about marriage in the scriptures that for this reason, um, a woman will leave her mother and father and be joined to his, her wife and the two will become one flesh. And so this is what Jesus is saying is as you take this, you're reminding yourself that you're becoming one with me. There's a marriage that is gonna take place someday. And so, biblically speaking, idolatry is equal to adultery. Idolatry is equal to adultery. It's not just these habits and hangups that I have, but it's me committing adultery against my groom. The two have become one flesh. This is why it's so important to understand this, because Paul teaches us this concept that whatever we do, because we are members of the body of Christ, 
Whatever we unite ourselves with, we unite the body of Christ with it. And so if a man engages in pornography, he takes that into the bedroom with his wife. If he's sexually intimate with a strange woman, he's bringing her into the bedroom with his wife. And he cannot have the intimate relationship he was meant to have with her as long as he's sharing himself with other women, either in the actual act or in his mind. Paul teaches us that whatever we do, Jesus is a part of it. We're taking him with us, and that should create a sense of fear and reverence that says, I have no part in that because Jesus has no part in that, and we are one flesh. He goes on to say, what am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. But listen to what he is saying. I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to what? To demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. Church, there are many of us that come on Sunday to dine at the Lord's table, but Monday through Saturday, we are dining with demons. We are sharing a cup with demons and we think that we're just messing around. We think we're just dabbling or sampling life. When in reality, we are sharing a cup with a devil. Why am I being so harsh with this? Because Satan is real and the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Not trip you up or make you look silly or make you feel ashamed, but to destroy you. Number two, we got to change our attitude. Get rid of your idols. Change your stinking attitude. Turn to your neighbor and say, change your stinking attitude. And now I just caused marital strife over lunch for some of you. <laughs> Reading on 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 11 now, starting in verse 20. Listen to this accusation. It's what it is. When you meet together, he says, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. Ooh. You ever come to church not really interested in what's going on? You ever gather together with other believers and not really be interested in any of them, but just yourself? For some of you, he says, you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others, and as a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. Talk about dysfunction in a church. Can you imagine that? We're here today. We're sharing a meal. People are like, by the time I got through the line, it was all gone. And then there's a table over here. People are like, oh, sing to Jesus, Right? This is, what, this is what he's addressing. I mean, this is, this is terrible. And so what? He says, don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. See, what's being described here is a complete lack of reverence accompanied by a very self-serving attitude. Now, I'd like to believe that this doesn't exist in God's churches today. I'd like to tell you that I haven't seen it or witnessed it for myself. I'd like to tell you, that, tell you that in leadership, I'm never surprised by some of the attitudes 
that I see from men and women of God, but I am. Can you imagine something done to honor the most selfless sacrifice done with such a selfish attitude? It's all about me. I brought food, but not to share. I brought my stuff before the Lord, but I didn't come here to give anything. I didn't come in here to minister. I came to be ministered to. That doesn't happen, right? He says, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper at all. We display this attitude when we come to church with our own agenda or we worship our preferences. This shows our lack of reverence for the sacrifice, and we show it in the actual act of communion. Like, here we go again. I remember we used to do communion every single week under Pastor John Jennings, and I remember telling myself, why do we do this every single week? Can I just be real? <laughs> why do we do this every single week? And, and there was even part of me that says, I think it loses its significance because it just becomes routine. Well, there was some truth to that, but isn't it up to us as believers to guard our hearts to make sure that doesn't happen? And so this casual attitude is reflected in all areas of the Christian life, not just over something like communion. We can have an apathetic attitude toward worship. I don't like these songs. I like they sing the same songs every single week. Let's just get to the word already. Like, I, I come here because I come here for the preaching, right? Or, man, Pastor Joe is getting so long-winded in his old age. There's a church down the street that they run three services, and the, and the services are an hour and 15 minutes long, right? An apathetic attitude towards serving. Like, yeah, I'll help at the big events, but nothing more, right? Toward loving others. Like, I'm going to avoid the people that are difficult, the EGRs as we call them. That means extra grace required. We can have this attitude towards giving. I'll give God my leftovers. Tithing, you're asking me for 10%. The church just wants my money. I'm gonna hold on to this. I need this. What if I need this? And, and you know what? But I do have a few bucks. I'll drop that in. We have an apathetic attitude towards giving. We can have an apathetic uh, attitude towards the word of God. Like if it doesn't pump me up and make me feel good about myself, I'm gonna keep looking. Not, did it convict me? Did it change me? Did it save me? And so the purpose of communion in large part is to guard us against these attitudes before they destroy us by teaching us to slowly examine ourselves. Or in the words of the Reverend Ice Cube, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. See, if the attitude of your heart is not right, you're opening yourself up to the enemy's attacks. And that leads me to number three. We better remember what he did. Remember what he did. In 1 Corinthians 11, now verse 23, it says, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. I wanna look into that statement closer when I have more time. Because I feel like he might be saying, like, this isn't just what the disciples told me, but God gave this to me in a revelation. I think that's what he's saying there, but somebody look into that and get back to me. 
On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This remembrance here, you can look at the original language. It's not just, hey, don't forget. It's not like, hey, do you still recall that Jesus died on the cross? But this is a, this is a regular and intentional and deliberate recollection. It's not about storing away the memory so that you don't forget, but about thinking about it often so that it stays at the forefront of your mind. Have you ever allowed something that you knew, but because it retreated to the back of your brain, the, the, the knowledge of it, you weren't aware enough of the truth that it kept you from making a stupid decision? or reacting out of emotion because you were in your brainstem. Let's get all psychological now. You were in your brainstem, and so you're very reactionary because the truth wasn't at the forefront of your mind. When we remember, we're saying, I'm gonna keep this as my central focus. Everywhere I go, I, the, the cross can never become cliche for me. The cross has to be the realest, most powerful thing that I can sing about it every Sunday. Every day is Easter in church. Every Sunday is about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it never loses its effect on me. But it reminds me every day that I got to pick up my cross and carry it daily to offer my body, as Pastor Scott said last week, as a living sacrifice. There's a difference between those who watched him bleed and those who quickly eat a cracker and drink some juice. You can't tell me that those that walked with him for three years and watched him be beaten and whipped within an inch of his life, that the same man that they saw open the eyes of the blind and heal the sick and cast out devils now hung on a cross and they watched as nails were driven into his hands and his feet and a crown of thorns was mockingly pressed into his skull. And they hung up there and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You're telling me that, that they could watch that and not be forever changed. Not a chance. Not a chance. Read the book of Acts and you'll see an entire church, but starting with 12 apostles that cast out demons and raised the dead and, and, and risked their lives. They were beaten, they were flogged, they were martyred. Why? Because they saw him suffer, they saw him die, and they saw him rise. We don't have the benefit of being there but remember what Jesus said, it is good for you if I go away because if I don't go away, the advocate won't come. But if I go away, I send the advocate, the Holy Spirit, so that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead can dwell in you. We can't become casual with that. We can't go through the motions anymore as a church. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, the greatest promise that God could ever make. He shed his own blood, and he made a promise upon it. He says, do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. 
See, the new covenant, what is the new covenant? The new covenant, in a lot of ways, is the old covenant fulfilled. Because blood has always and always will be the price of atonement. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It's the difference between renting and owning. See, the old covenant is like you rent, right? You get to stay there. You get to live there. You call it your house, but you always owe. But when you own your house free and clear and the debt has been paid and it's so much sweeter than it's paid when it's paid by someone else, that home is yours and you don't owe anything anymore. And so part of the reason of communion is that as in the Old Testament, the daily sacrifices were a reminder of the sin, a reminder of the debt, a reminder that we still need a savior. And the new covenant communion is a reminder that it's paid in full. It's a reminder that you owe nothing else, but instead you offer your life as a living sacrifice for the one who laid his life down for you and shed every drop of blood. He says in verse 26, every time you eat and drink um, uh, of this bread and this cup, it says you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. That used to really confuse me. What does that mean? Like, hey, Jesus died, Jesus died. We're announcing his death. Why are we announcing his death? We're announcing his death for a couple of reasons. One, because it's a public witness. And two, because I believe it's an inner declaration that reminds us of its significance. It's an inner, an inner declaration that keeps his name above all names in our heart, keeps him as exalted. This is also a weapon in overcoming sin because anytime the tempter comes with his feast and his delicious looking spread and he invites you to sit at his table, you announce Jesus Christ died for me so that I could be free from that. And I've exchanged this garbage that you offer for something that gives me eternal life. You have no authority over me. You have no power over me. We announce his death. Whatever that thing is that you've allowed upon your table, announce his death over that thing. There's no room at the table for anything this world has to offer. Finally, Understand this, that Jesus died for you, and because of that, you have authority over these things. You have authority over the enemy, and he's under your feet. That's why I had you say that earlier. Final point is this. Quit eating poison. Quit eating poison. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. This has been a passage that I'll have to admit I've never taught on before. And as a youth, it scared me. And I used to read over it because I'm like, I'm not ready to wrestle with that. But listen to this. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily, it's a really weird word for me, unworthily, is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. How many of you think that that is a sila moment? Or should we should just stop and, and, and weigh the heaviness of those words. And it gets worse. It says, that is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, listen to this, 
you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. Okay, hold up. We better, we better break this down, right? We don't want the enemy to cause any confusion over this. But the reason why I used to wrestle with this is I used to read this and be like, whatever happened to grace? <laughs> it's like, he paid the price, but if, if I have a bad attitude when I, when I take communion at church, like God's going to smite me? But what I've just described to you is nothing that was said here. That wasn't anything that Paul said. But what he said that when we do that is we drink God's judgment upon ourselves. We're inviting it in, which is a willing action, isn't it? And so what happens is when we allow sin to reign in our life unchallenged, we can invite the enemy in to have control over certain aspects of our life. Have you ever stopped to consider that, that thing that you're wrestling with, that it's not just you partaking in it, but it could be you have company. It could be that you have demonic influence who is joining you at the table. That's what Paul just told us in 1 Corinthians 10. This surprises some of us, but should it really? We just read in chapter 10 that to have any idol exalted above Jesus is to dine at the table of a demon. Just think about that imagery right now. Like just pull up a chair to the one that comes to kill, still and destroy. But what type of food would you expect to receive at the table of your enemy? Is this gonna be wholesome food? Is this going to, be, going to give you nourishment and strength? See, we live in a world today that presents a very tempting table along with a very appetizing spread. And literally nothing has changed since the temptation in the garden. It's a broken record on repeat, and it looks good, and it seems fine. Why shouldn't I enjoy this? But in the end, it's full of poison. Listen to this. If your enemy invites you to his table, it's to fatten you for the slaughter. But the Lord invites you to his table to strengthen you for the battle. Let's say that one more time. If your enemy invites you to his table, it is to fatten you for the slaughter. So those things that you think are not bad because they're not quite out of control yet are the enemy's attempt to fatten you for the slaughter. He's not satisfied with just keeping you from being perfect, Mr. Goody Tissues. He wants to ruin you. Sometimes it's important to know the motivation behind what's being offered. But the Lord invites you to his table to strengthen you for battle. See, sin gives territory and authority over to the enemy. And this is not legalism. It's simply an understanding of spiritual warfare. How many of you believe in spiritual warfare? Have you ever felt attacked by the enemy? Okay. So we're on the same page. He comes against us. And if it's warfare, what are the rules of engagement in warfare? 
Maybe you you might say there are no rules. He's going to do everything he can. and, And if one of those things is deceiving you and to giving him permission to poison you, guess what he's going to do? He's going to do it. This doesn't mean that every time you catch a cold, you have some hidden sin to repent of. That's not what I'm teaching today. Sometimes we get sick or we suffer because we live in a fallen world. And also you will not be, uh, spiritual warfare will not be absent as long as you're right with God. In fact, sometimes being right with God brings opposition and that's how you know you're going in the right direction because the enemy is opposing you. If you have no opposition, you might be going the same direction as the enemy. But what does happen is through sin, you give the enemy free reign over certain areas of your life. And so you can, you can pray. Have you ever been frustrated? And, and, and you pray to prayer and you're like, God, why did you allow my enemy to poison me? And I think he responds to us sometimes by saying, why did you even sit at his table when I have offered you a place at mine? Why did you eat what he offered you when it's my body and my blood that has been offered to you? Church, are you tired of living upside down? Are you tired of feeling like your butt's getting handed to you by the enemy? I'm sick of it too. And I think it's time that we did the only thing we can do, that we make sure that Jesus The name above all names is exalted above everything else in our life. Get rid of the idols. Change your attitude and your disdain for the table of the Lord, for the worship in his house. If you feel put out to get up on Sunday morning to come to church, maybe there's somebody else at the table Change your attitude. Remember what he did for you and quit eating the poison that this world has to offer. You know, sometimes the poison isn't so obvious. Sometimes it's things that aren't sinful until they become exalted, until they take control. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm hoping that there's time. We got a meeting today afterwards. We need all our partners to stick, stick around. But what we're going to do right now is I want to go ahead and ask all the table hosts to stand. And they're going to go right now and they're going to bring the communion elements to your table. Now, there's something significant about the way we're doing communion today. So don't let them distract you as they're moving because I want you to hear this. They're bringing back to your table one piece of bread. Because just as Jesus took it, it was one bread broken apart, symbolizing that they were one. Now, I know you guys did not want to share a cup. I wouldn't want to. But what we are going to share is a bottle. And so every cup is going to be served by the table host. And they're going to pour into each individual cup from the one bottle, symbolizing that, they are, that we are one in Christ. And my prayer as they lead you through this time is that there would be some things that God would reveal to you have been exalted in your life where God says in this way your heart is upside down and you're putting strain on it and as you remember what Jesus did for you as you remember what it cost that you'd have a reverence for it 
and you'd remember that you're one so that when you entertain things, when you entertain demons, when you have fellowship with demons, you're trying to bring Jesus into that situation, not in a good way. So do this for me. And actually, I got to pause real quick because I forgot something very important. If you're in the room today, I want you to understand that what you're about to partake in was done for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you're secretly wrestling with, no matter how many demons you've sat at a table with, he did this for you. And there's no shame for anyone who puts their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of those things. And they trust in him for their salvation. So if that's you and you're in the room today, our goal is not to embarrass you, but you do have to take a step of faith and boldness to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're in the room today and you say, I need to give my heart to Jesus because it's upside down and he's the only one who can forgive me and save me, lift up your hand real quick all over this room and we're gonna celebrate with you for making the most important decision of your life. Anybody in the room, just lift it up real quick. You don't have to stand or anything like that. Amen. Okay, so I'm gonna assume that means we're all Christians here. Okay, but before you take communion, if you say, you know what? I was scared to raise my hand, but I'm willing to tell you at my table, your table host will pray with you to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. But the second thing I want you to do at your table is let's just take a moment. That, so band, keep it soft for a while, okay? I think they're already planning to do that. But would you go around the table and would you allow yourself to be as vulnerable as you can be? Would you be willing to maybe share something in your life that has it flipped upside down, something that's exalted that needs to be taken down, an area of your life where Jesus is not exalted. And before we partake of it together, table host, would you just pray over those individuals to release those things to God, to put those things to death and for God to be exhausted in their heart again? And then go ahead and just lead them through communion. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. It can just be a simple thanking and a blessing of the bread and the juice and take it together. And then when we're finished, we'll come and wrap things up. Amen? All right, let's go ahead and do that.